Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy, wishing you a happy new year for our final episode of the year, which is a little bit different. Our listeners often want to know more about us and the Eyes on Success podcast, as well as how it works. Well, this week, you get to hear excerpts from an interview that Aaron Rockford, host of Aaron's Opinion podcast, did with us a couple of months ago. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip is, if somebody offers you an interesting opportunity, take it. You never know where it will lead. After our first tentative steps, we've now been hosting and producing Eyes on Success for 12 years and have recently surpassed 1 million downloads on our website, in addition to the people who listen through radio reading services or streaming services. So thanks for all of your support through the years. It's been a lot of fun, and we hope people continue to enjoy this show. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by APHConnectCenter.org, empowering people toward independence and success by providing blogs, information, and resources for individuals of all ages who are blind or visually impaired. Information and referral line are at 1-800-232-5463. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is the history of Eyes on Success and a bit about ourselves, its hosts and producers, Nancy and Peter Torpy. This is excerpted from an interview of us done by Aaron Rockford from the Aaron's Opinion podcast. I'll start the episode like I start all of them by saying, who is Peter and Nancy Torpy? So go ahead. Well, I guess first of all, we've been married for almost 40 years. We have two children and two grandchildren. And we're retired scientists, as many of our listeners know. I have been partially blind since birth and fully blind since maybe the mid-80s or so. And Nancy is fully sighted. But I have a lot of experience hanging around with a blind guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. So I didn't specifically know that you were scientists. Um, what area of science did you work in? Pete's PhD is in fluid mechanics, and mine is in semiconductor physics. But we both spent our entire careers working at Xerox Corporation, where we were working on next-generation printers and copiers. It was a lot of fun. I tell people that when I was a kid, I used to play all these mathematical games and puzzles, and I'm sure Nancy did too. Oh, I did. And then someone paid us to do that. So it almost wasn't like work. It was just a lot of fun. That's really good. Now, in my case, I have glaucoma and a congenital heart defect. But Pete, what about you? You you said that you've been blind uh, your your whole life, I think, for a significant part of your life. How did you come to lose your vision? 
So I was born in 1952 with congenital glaucoma. Oh. And back then, they didn't know what could happen in kids because it's usually associated with being an older person's eye problem, which is why they check older people's eye pressure when they reach 40. You know, no one knew I had glaucoma. It took the better part of a year to figure that out. Medicine has grown tremendously. So it's completely understandable that they didn't really understand it nearly as well in the 50s. Absolutely. And then, I mean, if you were born in the 50s, you were in university in, in the 70s. So if you don't mind me asking, you know, what, what are some things that really stood out to you about going to university and needing to be a successful blind person still getting your PhD? What can you tell me about that? Well, so I almost consider myself fortunate that I was blind since I was a child. Until I went to graduate school, I could hold a book several inches from my nose and read it. I didn't use a cane, although I probably should have when I was crossing streets in particular and at night. So I had a good sense of the world. And because I was blind since birth, I was plugged into all the services and adaptive aids, plus being kind of a geek. I like technology. And as you know, the technology's got better and better for blind people to deal with the world around them these days. So by the time I got to graduate school, I was well aware of recording for the blind, which is now Learning Ally. And I had all of my books taped, my quantum mechanics books, my mathematical physics books, and they recorded those books for me. And fortunately, by the time I got to graduate school, my eyesight cleared up and they were just starting to make those uh, CCTVs, closed-circuit TVs mm -hmm. that blew up print really big, like, you know, maybe four inches high uh, with lots of contrast. So I was able to do my work that way. Well, and to backtrack from that, when you were in high school and college, you basically used a small telescope to see the board. But, you know, for everything else, you just kind of got your head really close to it and before that, you went to a school for the blind. Yeah, I went to a school for the blind until I was in uh, fifth grade, I guess. So I knew some Braille skills. I, I went blind doing an operation just before I started graduate school, the summer before graduate school. And that's when I reacquainted myself with my Braille skills. I learned to use a cane. I said, look, I'm going to graduate school just because I lost my vision. There are ways of doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of blind people uh, that I talk to still use their usable vision in some ways at certain times. I think it can be good, but it also depends on exactly what you're using your vision for. Well, you know, I learned that when I was learning my cane lessons. I was starting to develop some light sensitivity and maybe a little bit of vision. I could see the contrast between the sidewalk and the grass. And when I was learning my cane lessons, I figured, oh, I ought to blindfold myself. You know, I'm blind. And right. I use a cane. And their point was, you know, you use all the tools and resources around you. If you can see a little bit, learn to use that. It, you know, it's an extra help. And I take that view with kind of everything I do. I try to make myself aware of a variety of tools. And depending on the task I'm doing, I may use this tool or that tool. And at least you have a choice of what is going to be the appropriate tool or maybe some combination of tools. Right. Absolutely. The more tools you know about, the better you're able to deal with some kind of task or problem, I think. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and then what can you tell me about your experience, you know, going through your PhD and then after your PhD when you started to work, as you said, for Xerox? What can you tell me about some of those fascinating experiences? 
Well, it's interesting. When I started graduate school, I told you I prepared the summer before to have recording for the blind, make my quantum mechanics books and mathematical physics books, etc. But they weren't always coming in on time. And so I didn't have the books the first few months of graduate school. But, you know, all my graduate colleagues were very willing to read into tape cassettes and they read books to me. And, you know, it was very kind of them. And, you know, they, they all wanted to do it. They all wanted to volunteer. They learned how hard it was to read mathematics. It's not like reading prose. You have to be very careful with the parentheses and what expression is over what expression, et cetera. It's, it's difficult. They also learned that your throat gets very dry after reading for a half an hour. <laughs> it does. So everybody was really supportive in, in graduate school. I, you know, it was, it was a very good place. And then when I was looking for a job, I really didn't think of myself as blind because I was doing all the things a graduate student does. I was doing the research and, you know, managed to do the kinds of things I needed to do, the computer work and all. So I really didn't think of myself as blind. I sent out resumes. I didn't mention that I was blind at all. And so people started calling up for interviews. And I remember with my interview at Xerox, they said, okay, you know, so get a ticket for a flight to Rochester, New York, and, you know, let us know when you're coming in and we'll pick you up at the airport. And I said, good. You look for me. I'm the guy with the white cane. They said, white cane? I said, yeah, I'm blind. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And after I hired at Xerox, I asked them, I said, didn't you have any reticence about hiring a blind person? I thought my manager, my hiring manager, was very open-minded at the time. He said, you know, I knew you were blind, of course. You're using a cane. You couldn't see anything. He says, but I figured if you got your PhD being blind, that wasn't an issue. And they were just interested in my technical expertise. I think, and I hope, and I, I really want to stress that I want listeners to listen to that basically last couple sentences you said, because this is a huge problem for my generation, is that blind people are not using their blindness as an asset. And that's what you did. You used your blindness as an asset to prove why Xerox needed to hire you, basically. or And also in, in a similar sense, you used your blindness so that Xerox would hire you regardless of your blindness. We have a serious, serious problem now with a lot of blind people are not getting hired just because they're blind. What's your philosophy about disclosing disability and blindness in a workplace setting? What do you think? So I'd just like to start by saying we sure. agree with everything you just said. One of the things we do on Eyes on Success is we interview blind people with meaningful careers. And it is astonishing how much trouble even skilled blind people have getting hired. And I think the real problem is that the hiring managers just don't get it. They're not willing to take a chance. You know, people who graduated near the top of their law school class and they're doing fine now, but they're working for blindness organizations, which is a meaningful career, but that's they couldn't get hired by any other law firm. I agree with you. I actually think that that's a big problem, that blind people oftentimes are drawn to work for blindness organizations, because I think it would give, not you, Nancy, in particular, but I think it would give most sighted people the idea that blind people cannot work with sighted people. 
if sighted people see blind people always working for blindness organizations, I think that is a reflection on what's really going on. What's your what's your theory about that? Well, and that's partially, as Nancy says, the reason we do our show. This is kind of our way of giving back. We like to interview lots of blind professionals with interesting careers, be it in oceanography or astronomy, mm-hmm. and just working for ordinary companies. And I think people need to know the example. First of all, the blind people need to know the example that, hey, I don't have to be selling pencils. I can have a real job wherever I want a job if I just get the skills required for the job and put myself out there. And then also to sighted employers, they have to see that, hey, here are successful blind people that are making real contributions to commercial establishments. So it works both ways. You need the success stories to get out there for people to realize what's going on and that things can work. Right. As I'm seeing more and more of these posts around the blindness community, I'm getting more and more concerned about the younger generations of blind people that are not finding careers that they like or at all. Over your career, what have you found or what... What is your idea on what really needs to change in the blindness community, I guess? What do you guys think? Uh, You know, I think certainly blind people do have to work a little bit harder to find the employment they like. Mm -hmm. Things are certainly not quite as easy for them because we have to overcome some stereotypes that other people have. And also certain jobs aren't open to us. For example, even with a PhD, I can't drive a truck. I couldn't do the simple job of packing supermarket shelves. So some of those lower level jobs, I think, are very hard to get. You know, you need some eyesight to do that. But as Nancy points out, you know, often if you have some kind of expertise, particularly a technical background, it's easier to get a job. You know, for example, there's no reason a blind person can't do anything on a computer a sighted person can do. We're pretty much parity when you consider the access to computers that we have and anything that can be done with a computer a blind person can do you know the technology has really made that possible these days there's no excuse so okay we have to try a little harder to get the kind of backgrounds and experience we need to get these jobs and maybe not everybody is capable of doing that I mean, the reason I got my job at Xerox, as Nancy said, my PhD was in fluid mechanics. Xerox happened to be looking for physicists who knew something about fluid mechanics. And that's one thing they don't teach in most physics programs. My program did. And so I was a natural fit for the job. And I think you have to look at what you want to do in life and have to get the training that's appropriate for the position that you're seeking. Absolutely. Both of you, by the way, I've noticed as a avid podcast consumer, never mind about a podcast creator myself, but as a consumer of podcasts, I've always appreciated uh, the beautiful way that both of you speak. Both of you are so pleasant to listen to and have such a great, you guys are such a great listen. Thank you. Did either one of you take like classes in like public speaking or anything like that? Because both of you are so clear and have such a beautiful way of talking. Where, where did you learn how to talk like that? Practice, practice, practice. 
But that's what I tell people, too. I tell people, keep practicing. I thought you would give me a better answer than practice. I thought you'd have more magic than more of a magical equation than practice, practice. Well, you know, we started doing this podcast almost 12 years ago. You know, when we first started, we were just being aired over our local radio reading service. And there might have been a couple of hundred people listening. So the first six months or a year was basically practice, you know. We we knew there weren't that many people listening, but what the heck, somebody was listening, so we kept doing it. And the other thing is we heavily edit our audio, and we figured out that it was a lot easier if you just said it right the first time and you didn't have to edit out the bloopers. So we've kind of trained ourselves into speaking the way we do. And then I think also we listen to examples. I mean, we're avid listeners of NPR, National Public Radio, and we listen to the Diane Reems show. Wow, she's a great interviewer. How does she do that? What makes her special? When you listen to the news announcers on NPR, they sound great. What makes them special? What could they have done better? Or when they screw up, why did they screw up? And so, you, you know, you kind of pick your role models and you kind of model yourself after that. Also, being in corporate research for a long time, you know, we were used to giving presentations. And when you had a career giving presentations, you learn how to give a good presentation, how to talk in a logically straight line, how to answer what you think people's questions are going to be before they ask them. And, you know, so we've had some experience there. But it does take time. It took us a while to find our voices on the podcast. Definitely. It's taken me three years to get to this point. Yes. And that's another huge problem now with, I think that there would be more blind people getting into YouTube or podcasting, but they just feel so insubstantial. You know, they just feel like like the people at the top of the system are going to totally drown them out. I think a lot of people blind or sighted are intimidated by the technology. I mean, we've had to learn quite a bit in order to make our podcast what it is. Right. Also, I think people are intimidated in what seem to be big problems, right? Like learning a new instrument. You don't all of a sudden learn the piano and start playing Beethoven sonatas. You know, first you learn the notes, then you learn the scales, you learn how to hold your fingers. It's a long process. Maybe it takes a few years to figure out how to do it right. And it just takes time. And I think people kind of lose their patience. They want to be a success right away. The saddest thing of all is that that's what people don't really understand about being successful, is if you want to be successful, it's really slow. Right. As a comedian once said, I have a get rich slow scheme. (laughs) Yes. Which is what life is. Life is just a get rich slow scheme. It really is. Right. There's no fast anything. Everything is super slow. Right. Well, and in addition to patience, persistence. Absolutely. What about teaching? A lot of people with your background, you know, get back into teaching after they retire. Do you do you ever lecture at the universities? We've each been to many technical conferences and given many technical presentations, but For about 25 years while we were at Xerox, they had a program that we were very active in where they would give employees not only the time off during the day, but all the materials we needed to go into the elementary schools and teach science lessons. Because 
cool. Wonderful as elementary school teachers are, they didn't have the equipment and they didn't have the background. And we would go in year after year after year. And sometimes we'd do four different classes. That would be a hundred 10-year-old kids. Science can be fun. And maybe they'd learn something tangible, but if all they picked up was science can be fun and they can use their creativity and their curiosity to try to solve problems, you know, some of those kids were going to grow up to get an education and hopefully a career in something meaningful to them. And it didn't escape us that we would walk in, you know, the science guys are here. And one of us was a woman, which is not what stereotypical scientists are. And the other one was blind. And at the end of the year, we would do what we irreverently called Pete's Blind Act. And, you know, it's like, okay, I did all this and I can't see what's your excuse. What what, what were some fascinating or endearing or really... Just really hysterically funny things some of the children might have said to you, Pete, or you, Nancy. I have a favorite if you don't. Do you have a favorite? Oh, I have a favorite. It was the time we got the entire fourth grade together in the auditorium for Pete's Blind Act because the timing was tight and there were a hundred kids in the room. Right? Yeah, that was the one. After I showed them how I use a computer, it talked, and I taught them a little about Braille, how I read, how I tell time— and it was question time, and one kid raises his hand. He says, but Mr. Torpy, how do you know what you're wearing? And, of course, the answer was supposed to be I put Braille labels on my shirts and ties so you know I knew what colors things were. But then he asked, how do you know what I'm wearing? Right. And I said, well, I can't really tell what you're wearing. I know what I'm wearing. For all I know, I said to the kid, you could be naked. And you could hear all the heads in the room turn to him. (laughs) And you could hear this kid turn red. (laughs) I think he's still embarrassed. It had to be 20 years ago. But, you know, pretty much every group of kids that we did the blind act for, somebody in the room, when it came to questions and answers, would say, how do you brush your teeth? And every single time he'd say, you know, your homework for tonight, when you go to brush your teeth, close your eyes, see if you can get the toothbrush in your mouth. And it's like some of this stuff, it's really pretty easy, if, even if you can't see. And they'd ask these questions. And it's a great age because I think one issue I have with society is that the adults have all been socialized out of even admitting that they recognize that you have a disability. You're right, Nancy. And they certainly don't ask questions about it. But these kids, we raised the topic. Pete described, this is how I do all of this stuff that you might find surprising that he's able to do. What other questions do you have? And and at age 10, they just asked whatever. They were very comfortable, which is great. But, Mm -hmm. you know, another 10, 20 years, they won't be asking anything. Yeah, adults just won't do that. You know, I worked at Xerox for many years. People saw me in meetings, giving presentations, running meetings, doing all kinds of work. And it wasn't until Bring Your Child to Work Day, where they take their children from office to office or lab to lab to, you know, see what a work is like, that they'd come in and they'd see how I did my work in Braille and my talking computer. And they'd say, oh, is that how you do your work? But it would never occur to them to ask. Right. That's interesting. 
And only slightly more socially acceptable was asking the wife of the blind guy. I can't (laughs) tell you how many people would stop me in the hall. How does Pete do this? How does Pete do that? And then heaven help us when Xerox switched from DOS to Windows, his closest colleagues and the, you know, guys he had lunch with five days a week cornered me in the hall. They're like, now Pete's sunk. I'm like, look, I don't know how he's going to do it, but trust me, he'll find a way. He'll make it work. Right. Absolutely. You know, but they weren't going to ask him. Yeah, I get that a lot, too. You know, or if I'm with family and we're in public, you know, they would say, like, what does he want or or things or things like that. So eyes on success. You've been podcasting for a while what would you say you would like your impact to be? Or really, how would you describe the flavor, the listening experience of Eyes on Success? Really kind of the mission of the show is captured by the name Eyes on Success. So every show is a success story in some sense. If we're talking about the latest features of some piece of access technology, that's a tool you can use to be successful. Or we'll talk to people who have hobbies or sports or careers they're involved in that they've been able to succeed at. And so, you know, we talk to a blind golfer. If you think you can't play golf just because you can't see, listen to that show and you'll find out how he did it. And maybe you'll be motivated to try it yourself. And that goes for anything from knitting to astrophysics. You know, we try to convey a positive message. We try to say, hey, you know, if if you have something you want to do, there's probably a way you can make it happen. Yeah. The other thing that's been very gratifying is being able to make connections. So some young person contacted us. I'm thinking of becoming a psychologist. Do you have any input for me? Well, we know nothing about being a psychologist, but we've interviewed a couple of psychologists And we asked the psychologist in question, could we give their contact information to the young person? And the two of them got together, and that was terrific. And that's really gratifying, you know, when you can put somebody who has the answer together with somebody else who has a question. It really is. It's been an honor to speak to both of you. Keep up your great work. Keep podcasting. Don't stop. You guys are doing magnificent, magnificent work. Keep up your great work. And as I say on Aaron's opinion, thanks so much, everybody. Stay safe out there. Help one person today. Help one million people tomorrow. And Aaron, we also want to thank you for having us on your podcast and giving us permission to use parts of that interview for our podcast. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about and listen to Aaron Rockford's podcast, Aaron's Opinion, and how to contact him, as well as the many ways you can connect with Eyes on Success. Aaron's Opinion podcast is on YouTube at the Aaron's Opinion TV channel. His official page is on Facebook, and just search for Aaron's Opinion Podcast. And if you want to reach him by email, it's Aaron's Opinion, and then the number six at gmail.com. 
And of course, most of our listeners already know how to contact us. If you want to send us emails about suggestions or comments you have about the show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. And of course, we'll have all that contact information and much more information about how to contact us and Eyes on Success in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2252. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be starting our 13th year by talking with Eric Damery, Glenn Gordon, and Ted Henter, who were together instrumental in bringing the JAWS screen reader into being for people around the world. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us at the beginning of next year. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.